Morning, Emmanuel. I want to uh, just first of all um, ask you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And as you turn there, I want to thank uh, Jeremy Corkum, Pastor Jeremy, for preaching God's Word to us so faithfully. I got to hear good reports of that. And I also want to thank you for your prayers. I was in Augusta, Georgia, uh, preaching for Crawford Avenue Baptist Church for Pastor Bert Daniel, and then uh, preaching at a Nine Marks conference on expository preaching. And uh, I was telling uh, that expository preaching conference that all you need to do is explain God's Word to God's people, and God does the rest. You don't need uh, fancy illustrations or great stories. You just need to explain God's Word uh, to God's people. So this week, as I prepared to preach God's Word and couldn't think of any good stories or illustrations, uh, I was put to the test. And uh, you may be put to the test as well uh, as, I, as I preach this morning. But I'm hopeful that as we just look at what God's Word says, that He will prove once again that just what He says is the very power of God unto salvation. Uh, we're coming to one of those uh, important and debated passages, certainly in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, but perhaps even in the New Testament. And so it just takes a, a great deal of careful thinking to walk through the various ways it's been interpreted and to think about uh, what precisely this passage means because it really sets a trajectory for how we'll take the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And so I ask you to give me your full attention and all of your brain power and maybe even pray with me that God would give me clarity and uh, all of us understanding. Let's pray. Father, we come before You, and You are the one who gives a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of You. You're the one who helps us to be bold and clear. You're also the one, if He so chooses, who can deny us understanding. Lord, would You please help our minds to be clear. We pray that You would help us to follow the argument and follow this passage that You have laid down for our good. Lord, we pray that You would make us in awe of Your Word. We pray that You would do this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. The Lord Jesus Christ said these words. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, to help us understand this passage, the first thing I want to do is read it again. And I want to read it again, just supplying a few questions. A few questions that will just help us really pay attention to how unified this passage is. This passage is not uh, four different biblical truths. You can stick each of them individually in a different fortune cookie and get lots out of it. They come together as a package. You'll notice that every verse starts with a because or a for or a therefore, which means that every single verse is working out the implications of the one before. And so I want us to notice that. And I want to read what I've just read one more time. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Lord Jesus, why is it important that we don't think you've come to abolish them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Lord Jesus, what are the implications of the fact that the law is never going to be abolished until the end of time? What are the implications of that? Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, why is it important that we do and teach all of the law's commandments? For I tell you, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Lord, again, we just pray for tremendous wisdom and understanding and a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. So we're coming this morning to one of our Lord's greatest and most practical teachings. In this passage, he's teaching his followers how they are to relate to the Old Testament. It doesn't get much more practical than how do you understand 75% of the Bible? If you're new to the Bible, you're dealing with about this much of the Bible when you're dealing with the Old Testament and about the last quarter of the Bible when you're dealing with the New. Now you might not have noticed that Jesus is talking about the Old Testament because he uses an expression to refer to the Old Testament here. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. But the law and the prophets was a common way of referring to the entire Old Testament. Just like sometimes we say the House and the Senate, or we just use one word, the Congress. They refer to the same thing. The Congress is made up of the House and the Senate. And similarly, the, the Old Testament is made up of the law and the prophets. And Jesus is just saying to us, don't think, don't, in fact, he says it emphatically, don't even let the thought pass your mind. Don't ever let it get in your head. Do not think, I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish anything in the Old Testament. Well, that statement really leads us to the first thing we need to think about this morning. What did he mean? What did he mean when he said, I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish the Old Testament Scriptures. Well, to abolish something means to do away with it to throw it on the trash heap of history. And Jesus is telling us that He's not going to do that to the Old Testament. If you read the life of the Lord Jesus, you find that there's no negative attitude whatsoever towards the Old Testament. He's not, as one person put it, a radical who's out with the old and in with the new. When Jesus is being tempted in the wilderness, what's He quoting? What's, what's readily on His lips? It's repeatedly the verses of the Old Testament Scriptures. When Jesus is dying on the cross, He's saying in the words of Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So He's actually using the Old Testament Scriptures to feed Himself in the temptation of the wilderness. He's using the Old Testament Scriptures to interpret His own experience when He's on the cross. Jesus' life is dominated by the Old Testament Scriptures. He never gives a hint that He would want to throw them away. Now there are certain things He does that might make people think that. Like when He plucks grain on the Sabbath. People go, hey, wait, wait, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Or when He um, challenges various rituals that had built up around the law. People might have gotten the impression that he was out with the old and in with the new. But Jesus makes it plain as day right here that he is not interested at all in abolishing any part of the Old Testament. In fact, if you look at verse 18, he says no part of the Old Testament right down to the smallest letter will be done away in any way, shape, or form 
until the end of the earth. And in fact, until every prophecy in the Bible is fulfilled. That's what he means when we read in verse 18. For truly, it's, it's emphatic, it's as emphatic as you can get, when the very truth has to say truly, you know he's trying to emphasize something. And he says, for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. That phrase, not an iota, not a dot, would be the equivalent in English of us saying, not a T will be uncrossed, not an I will be undotted, in the entire Bible. The whole thing is going to stand. You can't talk about any little part of the Old Testament Scriptures that's going to be done away with. The, the barest stroke on the page will stand until heaven and earth pass away, and then this phrase that's a little more, more hard to understand, until all is accomplished. And of course, it's speaking about all of the prophecies that were ever made in the Old Testament, which include Jesus coming, Jesus living, Jesus dying, Jesus rising again, the nations being gathered to Him, the resurrection of the dead and the eternal life of His people shining like the stars. Until all of that's done, the entire Old Testament remains. It stands. It's not done away with in any way, shape, or form. In fact, Jesus says this, the Old Testament is so important that if you don't teach it or you relax it, you are the least citizen in the kingdom of heaven. If you take a negative attitude towards the New Testament, to the Old Testament, Jesus says, you're low man on the totem pole. You're last in your class. You are least in the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on to say, look at this in verse 19, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We all have this desire for greatness. The important thing is we're supposed to be great biblically. How do you be great biblically? Jesus says, be a servant. And what kind of servant? The kind who does and teaches everything in the Old Testament. Now, what I've just been saying leads to one very clear application and one very difficult question. It actually leads to a lot of very difficult questions. The very clear application of what I'm saying is this. Emmanuel, we must be a people who love and cherish our whole Bibles. The Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is our book. It's all given to us by God and it must all be received, read, and cherished, believed, and obeyed. Think about this. When the Apostle Paul said to Timothy in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul said to Timothy in the New Testament, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. When the Apostle Paul said that, when he said all Scripture is breathed out by God, almost no one had a New Testament. In fact, anyone who did have a New Testament had only a part of it. When the Apostle Paul said all Scripture is God-breathed, he was referring primarily to the Old Testament. Paul was saying to Timothy, Timothy, if you've got that Old Testament, if you've got all those Scriptures, you can be taught and trained and rebuked and encouraged so that you can live a life of complete righteousness. Anything you might want to do in the hands of God, Timothy, you can be equipped by, by this book. And how dare we neglect the book that equipped the New Testament church? We need to be a people, Emmanuel, who know the Old Testament as well as the New. How can it be any other way? The Old Testament is the foundation of the New. The, the Old Testament is the seed that grows up into the flower of the New. You can't take the seed out of the ground and expect the flower to grow. That's against gardening 101. Emmanuel, do you know the Old Testament? Scriptures. 
Could it be that your Christian life is impoverished and weaker than it ought to be specifically because that lack of knowledge? So I want to encourage you in your reading plans, read it all. If you do not understand some part of it, keep reading. Get a book on the Old Testament. Attend a discipleship class. Join a discipleship group that reads the Old Testament and the New Testament. Learn to see the Old Testament as the foundation for the New. Learn to see the Old Testament as preserved by God until the end of the world. And learn to see the Old Testament as relevant for Christian living until every prophecy about Jesus that's in it is accomplished. That's a clear application. Here are the myriad of confusing questions. If no part of the Old Testament is abolished and every part of it stands till the end of the earth and you are a slacker Christian if you relax it and an excellent Christian if you do it and teach it, what does that mean? Do I need to observe the Sabbath command in the Old Testament and teach it? Do I need to give up eating shellfish this afternoon like the Old Testament commands? Uh, this is actually a very relevant question because many of you will be aware that many non-Christians use the shellfish command at this point in history to mock Christians for their stand on homosexuality. They'll say, yeah, your Old Testament forbids homosexuality. It also forbids eating shellfish. But you eat shellfish and forbid homosexuality. You must just be biased. You must just be a hater. You must just be a hypocrite. We had better learn to answer those questions. Why are there some things the Old Testament say we don't do? Anyone care to check what their shirt's made out of this morning? Any mixed fabrics with us this morning? What does it mean that every letter of it matters until the end of the earth? How do we make sense of that? This brings me to my second point. It's really my second question. The first question, what does it mean that he doesn't abolish any part of the Old Testament? My second question, what does he mean that the law and prophets are fulfilled? What does it mean that the law and prophets are fulfilled. Do you see that in verse 17? Do you see where my questions are coming from? Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. What does that mean? It means he hasn't set it aside. It means it's still binding. It still matters. The Old Testament matters today. But notice this. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does it mean? What does it mean that the Old Testament Scriptures have been fulfilled. Of course, this is one of the most debated points in theology. One time I was moving into a new house. Christy and I had that time had a futon bed. We've since been, since been delivered from such torture. But anyway, uh, we had a futon bed and a particularly uh, s smaller individual who was a friend of mine ha was grabbing this futon mattress. And of course, you know, if this futon mattress uh, has no spine and is all over the place. And he's this little guy is trying to hold this futon. And he was a seminary student, so that had done something to his sense of humor. And, uh, and he's trying to hold on to this, this futon mattress. And he's like, this is just like trying to get a hold of the, the law and the gospel. <laughs> well, it's kind of true. It's one of the most difficult things to think about. How exactly does the law relate to us today in light of the gospel? What does it mean that the law has been fulfilled? True Christians, dear Christians, my brothers and sisters in Christ, interpret this passage differently. Sam Storms has helpfully laid out five different ways Christians interpret this word fulfill. And I'm going to lay out four of them for you this morning. The first way that this word fulfill, the law is fulfilled, 
is interpreted is the way that some is oftentimes called theonomy. Theonomy. And uh, th that word theonomy is just made up of two words, theos, God, and namos, law. It just means God's law. But usually when you hear the, hear the term theonomy, it means something more than God's law. It's really speaking about God's law given to Moses. It's really talking about the Mosaic law. The Ten Commandments plus. The Ten Commandments plus the shellfish laws and the Sabbath laws and all of the Old Testament laws. Theonomy has been taught historically by such men as Rusus Rushnuni and Greg Bonson and currently at a popular level by Douglas Wilson. Greg Bonson, who has written a book called Theonomy in Christian Ethics, says that this word fulfill means to ratify, to confirm, or to establish as perpetually binding. Do not think I came to abolish the law, says Theonomy, but think that I've come to establish it as perpetually binding. The Mosaic law is perpetually binding is what a person like Bonson is saying. Bonson teaches that, quote, the entirety of the Mosaic code is binding on the Christian today. Of course, Bonson understands that there are some great realities that are new in our day. Christ has come to die on the cross. God is now at work in the church, not just Israel. But be that as, may, as it may, theonomy teaches that we must obey the whole Old Testament and our government must impose the laws and penalties of the Old Testament. So, who would get capital punishment in the Old Testament. Children should probably listen up. Worshippers of false gods, adulterers, homosexuals, murderers, Sabbath breakers, and disobedient children were all subject to receive capital punishment in the Old Testament. Now, if your response to that is, that shouldn't happen anymore because that's just bad, you're forgetting what word you're talking about. That actually is a good expression of God's righteousness and holiness and justice. And on the last day, all those people and more will receive worse than capital punishment but they will, all those who've lived in sin will receive eternal damnation. So we don't want to dismiss theonomy just because we're not used to those things. Still, I think there are good reasons to dismiss theonomy as an unbiblical approach. I don't think that what Jesus is saying is, I'm here to ratify the Mosaic Law. I'm here to make sure that every nation, not just Israel, obeys Moses. Think about this. If theonomy were true, if Jesus wanted the whole Old Testament applied to the lands, to the laws of the land in every land, then you'd think we would hear about it in the rest of the New Testament, don't you? I mean, in the New Testament, we see Paul and Peter speaking fearlessly before kings, don't we? But they never once call any of those kings to impose the specific laws and sentences of the Mosaic Law. Do you think they just lost their nerve? Couldn't quite go there far, that far? I'm not willing to accuse Peter or Paul, full of the Holy Spirit, of losing their nerve. They were willing to say what truths needed to be said to power, and they never said what the Theonomists said they would say or what you'd think they would say if theonomy was true. In fact, in the church, issues that would have gotten you killed in the Old Testament are treated very differently. Think about the Sabbath. In the Old Testament we read, six days work shall be done, but on the seventh you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest 
holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. It's the death penalty for Sabbath breaking. Doesn't get much plainer than that. But we come to the New Testament, and in Romans 14, we hear about Christians who do not believe one day is more solemn or holy than another. Off with their heads. No, that's not what happens. Paul says in Romans 14, there are Christians who esteem one day as better than another. I'm putting Romans 14.5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. What does Paul say to a man who does not esteem one day as better than another? What does he say to a person who's not a convinced Sabbatarian? He says, don't judge him. Welcome him. He's giving thanks and honor to God. So don't make a big debate about it. Paul, you're not a very good theonomist. If Paul was a red-blooded theonomist, it would have been his responsibility to execute the man from the church and then march him downtown Rome and call on the governor to repent and obey God's call to put this man to death. Paul, of course, does no such thing. Let's take another example. Take the example of adultery. Adultery in the Old Testament was an immediate death penalty. Deuteronomy 22.22 If a man is found lying with the wife of another woman, and both of them shall die. I'm sorry. If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman. Now, I want you to notice this little phrase. It's going to become very important. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Okay, so if there's adultery, both are to be put to death. What's the purpose? So you shall purge the evil from Israel. Okay, well, what happens in the case of adultery in the New Testament? Well, we actually know. In 1 Corinthians 5, we have a case of very serious, even perverse adultery. Paul says to the Corinthians, a man has his father's wife and you're proud? You're going on like this? A man has his father's wife? There's an adultery in your midst. There's something needs to be done. What does Paul do? Does he call on the government to put this man to death? No, but he does call for something worse. He calls for the church to discipline him. To be disciplined by a church is far worse than capital punishment. To be disciplined by a church is to be told, we have no confidence that you know the Lord or that you've inherited salvation at all. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the last day. And then at the end of the chapter, Paul gives a reason for why this is to be done. Listen to the reason. He says, purge the evil person from among you. Where do you get that line? purge the evil person from among you. He got that line from the Old Testament. What's going on? What's going on is that in Old Testament Israel, if you were to commit a capital offense, you were to be ex executed for, so that the evil would be purged from Israel. In the New Testament, things are being applied very differently. They're being applied. No part of the Old Testament is being put aside, but, but they're being applied very differently. No one's being executed, they're being excommunicated. Why? To obey the Old Testament. That, we, that evil might be purged from among us. It is almost as if Paul sees the Old Testament fulfilled in the actions of the church. I won't go there for now, but for now let me say Paul was no theonomist. And Douglas Wilson's having a moment right now and there's many things to appreciate in terms of his boldness uh, towards so many of the cultural issues of our day. But a Christian will be led astray. 
seriously led astray if they follow a theonomic reading of Scripture and expect that faithfulness means applying Moses to Washington today. So, what does Christ mean when he says, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them? What does he mean? What does he mean? Well, there's a theological answer that comes out of Presbyterian groups. Many Reformed Baptists would give a very theological answer that I'm going to give you. We, we dismiss the theonomic answer. And if you're like, well, this sermon really is dense. I'm getting tired. <sighs> Focus on your breathing. Uh, We're asking, what does it mean to not abolish? It means don't throw it away. Don't dismiss it. It's going to be binding forever. It matters forever until the end of the age. What does it mean to fulfill it? Well, it doesn't mean just to bring Moses into the present. It just doesn't mean to bring Moses and all that Moses commanded to every nation. That's the theonomic answer. It's, it's wrong. It's, it's been dismissed in my estimation by what we've said. Well, there's another way of dealing with the whole idea of fulfillment. There's another way of dealing with the whole idea of fulfillment. It's a way offered historically by Presbyterians and by Reformed Baptists. Honestly, I'm going to tell you what I'm about to explain is it's probably the approach of most of my heroes. Esteemed men, good men, godly men. We're not making divisions here about who's in and out of the kingdom. Many Reformed Baptists and Presbyterians would say the law can be divided into three categories. If you want to get technical, it's called the tripartite view of the law. Or you could say the law is divided into three categories. Depends how you feel. This idea goes like this. Not all the laws were the same. The law this can be divided into three different categories. Some are moral. Some are ceremonial. Some are civil. Moral laws would be like, thou shalt not steal. It's a law based on a moral principle. It's forever. It's a moral principle that comes right out of the character of God. Don't steal. A ceremonial law would be like, offer a lamb as a sin offering. That was part of Israel's ceremonial religion. And a civil law would be something like uh, dealing with Israel's laws. Don't yoke an ox and a donkey together. Don't wear mixed fabrics. Don't eat that shellfish. You follow the distinctions? There's moral laws. And then you've got ceremonial laws like the command to offer lambs. And then you've got civil laws. When you have those three divisions in mind, you can say something like this. Christ fulfilled the sacrificial laws so they're done away with. The 1689 Baptist Confession, a Baptist, Reformed Baptist Convention, says those, those ceremonial sacrifices were abrogated or taken away. He was the ceremonial lamb slain for our sins, so now those ceremonies are done away with. Or with the civil laws, they'll approach it this way. Christ abolished the civil law because that was just for one country at one time in history. And God's people don't live in that country where God is literally the king anymore. The 69 Confession says those civil laws have expired. And then, a Reformed Baptist would answer, the moral law, however, is always binding. Ceremonial, fulfilled in Jesus. Uh, civil, done away with. We're in a different country now. Moral, always remaining. Now this way of looking at the law has been the primary way, like I mentioned, of most of my heroes. And this threefold division of the law has some pretty careful categories that help us with much of the insanity of the day. I'll give you an example. Why do we forbid homosexuality and eat selfish? One was a civil law for specifically Israel to be a set-apart people. It doesn't have any eternal significance. Why do we forbid homosexuality? 
It's part of God's moral law that, that designed the world for one man and one woman to be the only place where sexual expression was to take place in marriage. We're not just being crazy and picking and choosing. There's been careful thinking that's gone into those kinds of distinctions. Now, as helpful as that is, I think this threefold division of the law is mistaken. First of all, the, lever, the law never talks about its threefold division. You're not going to read the Old Testament and say, and Moses, by the way, these are the civil ones, these are the moral ones, and these are the ceremonial ones. The law just doesn't come to us like that. The threefold division is, is a man-made construct. Now, sometimes we need man-made constructs, but, but that's what it is. It's a man-made construct. And it's not something that comes out of the Scripture itself. And, and really, and here's, here's the main concern, that threefold idea really has a lot of trouble with this text right in front of us. Okay? Jesus doesn't say, I've come to abolish two of the kinds of law and to fulfill one of them. He says, I come not to abolish any of it, I've come to fulfill all of it, all of it remains until the end of the earth. And all of it must be taught if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven. And so I don't think that that threefold division serves us best. We're going to find in those brothers many helpful insights, but I think there's a better way of approaching the law than dividing it into these three categories. So what does fulfill mean here? Well, we'll look at one more view that I think is mistaken, then I'll get on to what I actually think is right. Storm summarizes the third view like this. Another view insists that fulfill, when, when Jesus said fulfill, He simply meant obey. I have not come to abolish the law, but to obey it. Now, this is a classic case of good theology, wrong text. Did Jesus come to obey the law? Can I get a? Amen. Amen. Okay. And by obeying the law, did he not do everything for us and for our salvation? Amen. And if you're not a Christian here this morning, or you're someone who's thought they're a Christian, but you really isn't, you haven't understood the power of the gospel. I could not communicate it better to you than to say this: Jesus Christ came and obeyed where you did not obey. Jesus Christ obeyed even to the point of death, even death on a cross. And then He rose from the dead to show that His death on the cross was accepted by God for the salvation of anyone who will believe in Him. I would encourage you. I would command you on behalf of God. Believe in Jesus who did obey every single word of the Old Testament. He was born under the law, became obedient to the law, even to the point of death for us and for our salvation. Anyone who believes in Him doesn't have to work their way to heaven because Jesus has done all the work already for them. Every single thing I just said is true and is not the point of this passage in front of us this morning. This word fulfill, linguists tell us, just simply doesn't mean obey. In fact, we're going to go back and look at some other ways this word is fulfill is used, and we'll see it's never used in terms of obey. So Jesus is not saying, I did not come to abolish the law, but to obey it. And in fact, that misses the whole point of this, this whole context, because what are we dealing with in the whole context of Scripture? We're dealing with the Christian life, how, what we're called to obey, how we're going to have a righteousness greater than the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus is going to get into in just a minute how we're not just to avoid murder, but to avoid anger. The context of the, what I'm trying to say is the context we're dealing with here is not dealing with the finished work of Christ and his obedience. It's dealing with what we're called to. And we need to focus on that since that's what's in view. Okay, seventh inning stretch. It's baseball season. Uh, we want to, uh, if you need, does everyone need to stand up? Why don't you all stand up? The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. I thought I could do this. It's not happening for me. Good rush of blood to the, oh, we're so human. We're so embodied. Okay, have a seat. Let's do this thing. What does fulfill mean here? Tell us. Amen. Tell us. 
It's a preacher's dream. Okay. I believe the word fulfill here means the exact same thing when we apply it to the law and to the prophets. Here's what I mean. Notice what Jesus is saying here. He says, do not think I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've come to abolish, not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Now here's something really nice. There's so many things Christians disagree on, but here's something Christians generally agree on. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament prophecies. Can I get another amen? amen. Okay, so in Matthew chapter 1, when Jesus is born of a virgin, Matthew says to us, this was to fulfill. Same word. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Jesus. Old Testament promise, great reality is what fulfills it. Another example. In the New Testament, we don't just get fulfillment from promises, we also get fulfillments from patterns. There's patterns in the Old Testament and they get fulfilled. One of those came to us earlier in the book of Matthew. You might remember it. And the promise that I'm speaking of is that Way back in the Old Testament, God brought His son Israel out of the land of Egypt. Very few were mouths mouthed Egypt. Let's try that again. Back in the Old Testament, God brought His son out of the land of Egypt. And of course, this was because that's all God wants to do in the world is save slaves out of foreign countries. No, it was a pattern of something greater. And that's why when we read Matthew 2, verse 15, and baby Jesus is down in Egypt, and He comes up out of Egypt as a toddler, and God quotes the verses of, from Hosea and says, there it is, there's the fulfillment. This was to fulfill, same word. Matthew 2, verse 15, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Sometimes the Old Testament says, here's a promise. Virgin will be with child. Fulfilled with great reality. Other times the Old Testament says, here's a pattern. I get my people out of slavery. Fulfilled when Jesus comes to bring his people out of slavery for sin. And what Jesus is telling us here in Matthew 5 is that the law the commandments of the law should be viewed the same way. They weren't ultimate. They were going to be fulfilled in a greater reality in Jesus. He was going to take the law, which just sung a perfect song with, with the volume at one, and he was going to turn the volume up to ten. He was going to take the law, which was like a perfect little candle shining the light of God's righteousness, and he was going to turn it up to the full blaze of the sun. And so that the law that Moses gave is absolutely right and good and holy and righteous. But the law of Christ goes so much further and deeper and most glorious. And it fulfills all that was promised in the law of Moses. Now I'm going to tell you this. I just explained it. That's all I got. There's my, there's my, there's my answer. Just like prophecies are fulfilled, the law is fulfilled in Jesus. But I'll tell you what. I've studied this for years. studied this all week. And I find it's just way easier to understand, not in the theoretical, but in examples. So let me give you three. Let me give you three examples. Okay, first example. Should Christians celebrate the Passover today? Should Christians celebrate the Passover today? You know the Passover meal? Israel was passed over by the angel of death. They weren't killed. And when they celebrate the Passover, they ate this particular meal without any leaven, without any yeast in their bread. 
Yeast is this universal symbol of, of sin and a corrupting influence. And we're Christian, and so there's this Passover meal. Should Christians celebrate the Passover meal today? All those in favor? Yes. Well, that's interesting. I wonder what you mean. We'll find out. All those opposed? I met my, when I met my wife, she was actually dancing at a Jewish synagogue Seder. So that's another story. But anyway, um, <laughs> should Christians, I didn't meet her there, but that was one of the early incidents. Should Christians celebrate the Passover today? Let's go back to 1 Corinthians 5. It's that passage on church discipline. It's that passage where the man is with his father's wife. It's that passage where it says, purge the evil from among you. It's that passage where Paul commands the excommunication of a man who will not repent of his sin. I want you to listen to very closely to how Paul describes church discipline to the church in Corinth. He says, your boasting is not good. You're bragging about having a sinful guy in your midst and not doing anything about it? Not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Don't you know that just a little bit of yeast in the lump makes the bread go big, big, big and corrupts the whole thing? He says, cleanse out the leaven that you may be a new lump. Your congregation should be free from leaven, free from anything that's making it grow in impure ways. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. What on earth just happened? Paul just said to a congregation, oh yeah, when you get together, it's a Passover, all right. We're celebrating Jesus delivering us from sin. We're celebrating Jesus delivering us from slavery. We're celebrating that Passover. Don't you do that with sin in your mix. Don't you do that allowing malice and evil to reside in your midst. Instead, put out the malice and evil and celebrate that Passover with truth. In other words, every time we gather Emmanuel, purifying ourselves from sin, we are obeying the command to celebrate the Passover. And when we practice church discipline, not for every little infraction like a bunch of legalists, but for those who refuse to repent, we are keeping the whole lump pure so that the Passover is being celebrated in a way that honors God. Now that's amazing. Are we abolishing any part of the law when we do that? Are we fulfilling it? Does it abide as long as heaven and earth exist? Are we teaching people to relax it? Or are we actually teaching and doing it in a fulfilled way? And when we do this, let me ask you this, do we have a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees? Yeah, we do. We don't just have some group of people. We have a group of people that are actually living in truth. Example number two. This one from the more immediate context, a little less exotic. Jesus is telling us in the Sermon on the Mount, He doesn't abolish the law. He fulfills it. All of it is still binding. You must be taught it so that our righteousness is greater than the scribes and Pharisees. So what does that look like? Matthew 5.21. Matthew 5.21 You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Why had they heard that? Why had the people of Jesus' day heard that? You shall not murder, and if you do, you'll be liable to judgment. Why had they heard that? Because it was in the law. Because they'd read their Bibles. That's why they heard it. Now is Jesus going to do anything to abolish this? No way. Didn't abolish any of it. Might he do something to fulfill it? Yeah, he does. He presses the law deeper and fuller. He says this in Matthew chapter 5. He goes on and he says, 
but I say to you. You heard it said don't murder, but I say to you. Here's a little something more. That everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. The Old Testament law made it clear that God despised murder. And and surely if you read the whole law, it's clear that he wants the heart as well. But Jesus, he accentuates that focus on the heart. He, He presses it to the depths of the heart. He says, I am not just building a law that keeps marriages together or that keeps people from killing each other. I'm I'm building a law that presses to the heart that destroys all murder and hatred. He does it again in the next commandment. I'm not just saying, you've heard it said don't commit adultery. That's true. Not going to abolish that. I'm telling you, not even to lust. What's Jesus' law doing? It's pressing brighter. It's pressing deeper. It's pressing into the very heart of the matter. The law Was the law of Moses getting at that? Of course it was. But the Lord Jesus Christ presses it to the nth degree. So much so that the Bible will sometimes call it a new commandment. The law of Christ. Well, apparently I don't have time for a third example. I'll I'll say with the Hebrews, time would fail me (laughs) to speak of how we obey the Sabbath when we rest in Christ. How every single one of us is circumcised when we're born again. How we honor God's law. We don't abolish one bit of it. We teach every bit of it. But not by dividing it up and showing which part was applied now and which part's applied then, but by showing the whole thing is applied in Jesus Christ. The whole thing is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Christ is our blazing center. Christ is our North Star. Christ now comes and reinterprets and explains the whole Old Testament law in a way that abolishes none of it and brings all of it to fulfillment. So that His people walk in righteousness. Heart righteousness before Him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that You would Teach us to be a people who do not abolish a single portion of the Scriptures, but who teach the whole Scriptures as fulfilled, who teach the whole Scriptures as binding till the end of the earth, who teach the whole Scriptures and do them, and in doing them, know and experience a righteousness that's even greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.